everyone, welcome to Bookversations. We're your hosts, Sayed, and I'm Mahmouda. Join us as we have conversations inspired by books. Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Bookversations. This episode's conversation is inspired by Yaa Jassi's book, Transcendent Kingdom, a novel about a Ghanaian immigrant family ravaged by depression, addiction, and grief. I'm going to let Suad explain the plot of the book. So, Transcendent Kingdom follows the life of Gifty, a fifth-year candidate in neuroscience at Stanford School of Medicine. She's studying, basically, reward-seeking behaviour in mice and the neural circuits of depression and addiction. Her brother, Nana, was a gifted high school high school athlete who died of a heroin overdose after a knee uh, a knee injury left him hooked on oxycontin her suicidal mother is living in her bed gifty is determined to discover the scientific basis for the for the suffering she sees all around her dun, dun, dun. let's go yeah i mean just as you were reading that plot even my heart was thinking again so basically guys the reason why we didn't have an episode last week was because i couldn't finish the book in time like i was not because the book wasn't great, it's just the subject matter is really heavy and I just had to keep looking, like putting it down and picking it up again because I think it was, just, it, was just, it was hitting too close to home and it's strange because I feel like, yeah, there's just so much happening in the world where you see that struggle reflected in other people mm-hmm. that I was just like, this, this could affect anyone. I think sometimes the assumption that we make is that, oh, like addiction can't affect people that are close to us or addiction can't affect people of faith, which I think this book mm. deals with really well that addiction is something that can affect anyone and how, yeah, how that impacts a person themselves and their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book does a great job. But yeah, what were your thoughts about the book? I, I loved it. It's one of my favourite reads of 2021. I think it's top of nice. one of my favourite books, actually. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because I was kind of nervous when I first picked it up. So I went to the bookshop and I'd been hearing about it-ish, kind of. And I was like, okay, I loved her first book. I'd like to read her second book, but because it says religion and science and like, I feel like personally, when I see when I see books that talk about religion and science, they always pit them against each other, and I don't think it has to be one or the other. Yeah. Um, and I was kind of skeptical about that because I, I just wanted to I just wanted to know if she would write it with the care that it deserved. And I remember a friend was like, "Just pick it up and read it and see what you think." And I bought the book in November, but I just didn't have the courage to read it. I guess until January, and I couldn't put it down. I like I have notes on almost every single page in this book. Wow. And I remember there was a page like 200 and something where I was literally wrote, Yeah, Jassi is a genius because she just did an amazing job in like getting into the character's head and conveying it in a way that you could only like there's no way you couldn't have believed that this was the character and this was who the person was. Yeah. Um, and she just had a way of writing. I don't think many people can do a good job in dealing with a subject matter as heavy as that with a first first person voice and carry you along that strongly start to finish Mm. it was so well done yeah and I love the I love the writing style and the narrative voice and the characterization I love that we got to see like snippets of her journal when she was a younger like when she was young because you really get to experience her growth as a person and I remember I would read like little things in the book and I'd be like in the beginning I'd be like "Mm, I wonder how she'd learn or grow out of this or how she would work this out or if she would actually grow out of this and it was really refreshing right when you see like towards the end when she actually grows or she learns those yeah. things that you saw about her in the start I, oh my I, God. I just I just remembered I think in one of her journals when she was first time like discovering the concept of like punishment 
Um, mm. And like she would code her family member's name and she'd be like, I love that. Yeah, God. I think she was tracked down to something like Black Mamba or something. Black Mamba was her mom, TBM. <laughs> and Buzz was her brother. But like, and her, writing about her God dad was the chin chin man. It's not supposed to be funny, but it was so funny when I read it. Like, I think it was, she does it a great was. job of letting her innocence come through. And I think that's mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. Like, the novel is so strong. But on the subject of talent, I remember um, when I finished reading the book, I was um, reading other reviews. It's actually so true in terms of like the style of this book is so different from Homegoing. Yeah, it's yeah. so like radically different. It has before. range. It has range. Thank you. Range. Range that we can dream of. Amazing range. Amazing <laughs> So credit to her. Credit to her. I think, yeah, I agree with you. It's really hard to write a book in first person and sustain it in a way that's like interesting. Or, every word served a purpose there was no word that didn't serve her purpose like uh, it was just it was so well done yeah oh, so good. i agree so, one of the things you know it was so weird when, when i first started reading the book and so basically at the beginning of the book we get this idea of them um the mother wanting a better life for her family and essentially moving to alabama in huntsville um and so of course like the the woman the black woman's experience in america is very different from the black man's experience in america which leads to mm-hmm. um which leads to the husband eventually leaving and leaving her behind with her two children but anyway when i was reading this book i, I don't know if you remember this but there was a time in nigeria that a lot of the novels that were being published was about the dangers of sending your children abroad because they were going to turn into like thugs or drug yeah, and i remember. like oh I like reading this Reading this kind of reminded me of those memories back in the day mm. because of like what mm. happens to like Nana and t- is it Nana or Nana? I don't know how you pronounce Nana, it. Nana, yeah. The main character. Nana, the main character of like just how your dreams and hopes can get shattered so quickly. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Oh, it was such an intense read. My God. Continue. I wanted to hear more of your thoughts about like Nana's story. Oh, get flashbacks. <laughs> yeah just, just reading the book yeah the book because you know when you I don't know I guess I just when I read I'm like in in the story mm-hmm. and just being in the scenes when you're talking I was just talking about when I was just thinking about when Nana came back from the program and how we sat with them and, and was making his promises and I I felt it even though I knew what the storyline was I knew he died right but I just I still I was so hopeful and I wanted to believe him so badly that he was going to get um, better. Yeah, I, I really wanted to. But then it's it was such a good, important lesson because it just shows you how addiction is not just a disease. It's also, it's it can, it can control you, number one. Number two, if, for example, you know how they took him away and he stopped, they cut him off everything. Mm. I feel like addiction was treating, he was using addiction to treat the symptoms of all of the stuff that he was going through. Yeah. And so... When he had been put back in this in this situation or the environment where he used to find the drugs, without the root cause of the problem having been treated, it was only right or it was just only I guess normal that he was going to go back to that coping mechanism that he had found in addiction. Yeah, yeah. That, that was one of the things. That's one of the things that I wrote in my um, note as I was reading that like addiction feeds off of unresolved trauma, and a lot of the times we are like trying to. We're looking at the symptom, but not looking at the trauma underlying it. And we were having this conversation before we like started recording. Like when I look at um the common kind of like thread in 
sort of like um pop culture and the people who are like really battling with addiction so or like people who have died because of addiction so like Whitney Houston um Amy Winehouse we have like Demi Lovato now DMX oh my god I just talk about DMX because I don't even know him like that but I just feel like I've been really affected mm. by his story but just this concept mm. of like unresolved trauma and how it's just so important that we deal with people with empathy and kindness because I think a lot of the times you think of addiction as a failure in willpower. Mm-hmm. Someone like Nana in the story, for example, he was given a pain management medicine for his injury that then ended up into an addiction, right? But he was already dealing with he was already dealing with um, trauma beforehand. With the like, dad leaving, your mom exactly. not being present, all of like I mean she was there but couldn't be present because obviously she had to fend for the kids and. Mm. It was a lot. I feel like as I was reading, I felt like it was a lot for a young boy to be dealing with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was oh, mm. there was a line in the book. I didn't have my copy, which is so annoying. But there was a actually, it's one of my favorite quotes. There was a line in the book where she was like, "Nana had tears in the corners of his eyes that were threatening to spill, and he was making a face I've only seen in young boys, a face that is the facet of a man hiding a boy who has had to grow up far too fast, and he." Yeah. he, he he had to take responsibility the moment that dad left and he was still really young when the dad left mm. or not even be, being able to express your anger about things that have happened like we have to remember and remember that dad gave us, them hope exactly exactly i think even for us we can say the process of learning how to communicate your emotions is a journey mm. so I like really... going through so much <laughs> as in as in <laughs> anyways <laughs> Also, present. because they're not an expressive family, I remember writing that down. You know that scene where um the the cleaner was telling them, "Oh, you speak to your brother like you're an employee." Mm-hmm. Say, "I mm-hmm. love you to each other." Oh. I know that that was an interesting one. Yeah, that was. You know, it made me think about my house, right? Well, my house yeah. is in my home, and how like saying "I love you" wasn't a thing. And but my yeah. mom started saying it like a few years ago. And uh-huh. I mean, till today, it still makes me cringe. But I always try to make sure I say it back to her, because we're not used to it. We and weren't yes. raised that way. And but yes. I always we're said it back. Uh-huh. I always said it back because I know that it takes a lot of courage and vulnerability to tell somebody I love you. Yeah. And to not then hear it back, it's almost yeah. like, yeah. I just yeah. I feel like back in the days, our parents' love language was giving you food, as long as they were giving you food, doing things for you, buying yeah. you something, making sure you're that okay. Was it. It was mm, they didn't you. actually express it they weren't very expressive yeah. right yeah but they've changed even with yeah even with my dad now, he says it to my brother and i'm like oh what's going on <laughs> he says it oh my god yeah, even the day my dad says it i'll cringe and just calls on a sunday he, he yeah. ends with, love you and i'm like me. your dad <laughs> your dad <laughs> my <laughs> god okay hello hello we didn't grow up with this. Wow. I've never but heard yeah, my dad use really nice that, those phrases. <laughs> I swear. Oh, my God. The experience oh, of growing up in an African household. Yeah, so yeah. I feel like that part... I could relate to a lot of things that she was going through, yeah. Yeah, because I feel like that... Um, a lot of a lot of what followed his addiction was just the inability of not dealing with the past or at least not having mm-hmm. the tools to deal with the past which is why I, oh but okay actually I want to talk about this because I feel like a lot of the book deals with um faith and our approach to faith and I think at the mm-hmm. end um Gifty kind of talks about this concept of when Nana was doing well everyone wanted to be around him people at church would call him to come forward but then when he was mm-hmm. going into when he was ill then they everyone did not, did show up? yeah they so did it's this idea of like 
our approach that's to not what faith is. people falling yes our approach to people falling like how is that like well, not just with christianity but even with islam are there mm-hmm. lessons for us do we to cast learn? them away like, what do we show up for them because we recognize mm-hmm. that they need help i think it's because we, we tend to be human beings in general tend to be very judgmental and yeah. so the first thing that comes to your mind is judgment and when you're in a place of judgment you don't you don't see you don't think of compassion you don't think of empathy you don't think how can i help this person you just immediately think oh i came out well i did better i survived how can you not be able to pick yourself up you brought it up on yourself and forget that people have totally different experiences from you and what you see on the outside is not necessarily the only thing that they have going on for them mm-hmm. and, and just respecting that a lot like so many people are carrying like so many like different baggages that we have no awareness mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. and so like mm-hmm. yeah like mm-hmm. we need to be gentle and i think it's just that thing of like is the is the right way to pull people off to make them feel that they are unredeemable because i think sometimes that's the way that we have conversations about like diseases or because i I guess addiction falls to some extent like you can be addicted to something that is a sin right so then like it's our approach that oh you're addicted to this sin that makes you unredeemable like one thing that i really love um I think she well, nobody's unredeemable. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a course on Wise Life Academy that's on addiction. And one thing that they mention is like you are not your addiction. Like it's two separate things. Like you might be struggling, but your essence in itself is something that is like incorruptible. From... And so there's hope for everyone. And I think you know that what this reminds me of. Yeah. The quote in the book is another one of my favorite quotes. But I guess I'm going to read it now. But basically, mm. so gifted. This is towards the end of the book. And she's talking about people who are addicted. And she said, I know that it's easier to say their kind does seem to have a taste for drugs. So she's reflecting on how the church received her brother um, and how people see black people especially. And she said, I know that it's easier to say their kind does seem to have a taste for drugs, easier to write all addicts off as bad and weak world people than it is Mm. to look closely at the nature of their suffering. I do it too sometimes. I judge. I walk around with my chest puffed out, making sure everyone knows about my Harvard and my Stanford degrees, as if those things encapsulate me. And when I do so, I give it to the same facile, lazy thinking that characterizes those who think of addicts as horrible people and that hit home very strongly because you think about the fact that that person has an addiction and they are not their addiction and you have your achievements and your accolades but you are not your achievements and your accolades and what happens when you're stripped bare of all of those yeah are you really on the inside oh my god absolutely i was thinking about that recently as well because i was just thinking oh my god it's so easy to get caught into like into the things that you're accumulating or the things that you're achieving but Mm that's not like that's not who we are (laughs) like any of those things can be gone in the like blink of an eye so why is it that we're attaching so much of our identity to things that actually in the long run (laughs) like it's not the thing that matters the most but yeah that's a really good quote any other thoughts that the book brought up for you like reflections I think one thing I I came to mind was how much should should parents tell kids like stuff like I didn't want you? Because the mom said that quite a few times to Gifty. Ooh, um, yeah. you know, I only wanted one child by only and, and then God gave me no, I only wanted one child and now I'm I'm left with only you, or something like I only wanted Nana. And I think from a young age, she's been made to see that she's not wanted. She's been made yeah. to, to see that she seemed like a, a um a leftover child and a brother is already then an overachiever and like I mean which is a good thing right but then she's almost like it's almost like she's living in the shadow of Nana 
And even when Nana passes away, the mom never fully recovers, right? And she's trying so hard, which is sad because you see, she's trying so hard to be validated by her mom. Yeah. And it's sad because she has to learn very quickly that that's something her mom could never give to her. Not because she doesn't want to, but because her mom would never get to the point where she would be able to see that. Her mom is is like in a different sphere or world. Um, And it was so difficult seeing her having to deal with that from a young age. And whether it's okay to say stuff like that to you. Because I mean, I know their mom was very direct, but that's so like those offhand comments. Kids remember stuff and it yeah, stays with a sure. child and they, they hold on to it and they re- say it to themselves over and over again. And it becomes an affirmation to them, which is obviously not a positive affirmation, there's a negative yeah. one. But it's just, it made me think a lot about just being cautious of how we, the things we say to kids or to people in general. Yeah, I think and so how much we of. So much of our unconscious patterns as adults were formed during childhood. So I definitely get what mm-hmm. you mean in terms mm-hmm. of like the stories or the need for validation that kind of like follows her life. To be honest, I was really shocked that she was still so like gentle with her mom. Mm-hmm. Because she still surprised. wanted, she still sought, the child in her still sought that, that mommy give me a hug, mommy show me affection. Because she yeah. never got that when she was younger. So she still wanted it, even as an adult. It was, was so, so sad. Yeah, she tried so hard. It's so uh, sad. Yeah. But on the subject of portrayal of depression through the mum, I remember when I was reading it. So um Gifty goes to Ghana for a period of time where she sees quote unquote a madman who's dressed in like, I guess the way we typically kind of like portray people who are mentally ill in society. But I was thinking mm-hmm. about like how our perception of mental illness happens in extremities, right? So because the mum at the beginning is very resistant to that label of being depressed because she's like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm not crying like American people and I'm not looking at, I'm not looking like that picture of someone that is mentally ill, so therefore I'm not depressed. But actually, mm-hmm. like loads of people are in that middle part of like some of the um, symptoms is you stop eating, you stop sleeping, the things that you normally find you pleasure doing things you, you like, exactly. Exactly. So those kind of symptoms um, are really important to acknowledge. <laughs> like depression mm-hmm. isn't... <laughs> something that only happens in the extreme where it's like you're let loose in the market as they portray in the book right like and I think that it was it was a really good um I, I like the way the author kind of like took that approach with the mum in terms of mm-hmm. like a slow kind of oh, I want to use the word degradation but like a slow breakdown of things and how like that is another picture of depression and for some people like high functioning depressions exist as well like people are going through depression depression and they're still functioning as they do every day it's just when they're in isolation Mm -hmm. that it's like yeah like everything's really bleak like we get really surprised when for example someone that's really successful i remember the ceo that um died through suicide recently and it's like we're in shock about it but what depression looks like it changes so much that that's why Mm -hmm. again like it doesn't have a face kindness yeah it doesn't have a face exactly Exactamente. I think one thing I, I liked that the book touched on a lot is how religion is taught to children. And um, actually, first of all, before that, the, the 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 black and white church thing, and then also just how religion is taught to children. Um, because I think I love that in the book you get to see different sides of religion, right? Mm. So growing up, she talks about how her mom used to go to obviously a black church. She was living in Ghana and, and she knew what it was like to sing and to express herself to be welcomed in the community. Now, I think I was talking to somebody a few days ago, but one of the worst things is being is going to a place of worship to seek God and not being able to completely worship because of the people around you in the sense that, again, racism, right? And 
I was talking to someone about how I met somebody in Germany who was doing a research on anti-Black racism in the Muslim community in Berlin and how it affects people's fate. And I was like, of course it affects your fate because when I'm reading a, a, a scripture that says, God says love everyone, you're all created equally. And but then the pastor or the imam who is preaching to me is the same imam or pastor that uses the same mouth to say his daughter can't marry a black man or his son can't marry a black woman. And that leads to some intense cognitive dissonance because I, I do want to believe in God, right? But then we are all creations of God. And, and this is supposed to be a manifestation or like a, examples or the teachings, right? We're supposed to be practical in what we learn from, from the Quran, from the Bible, from the scripture in general. And what I'm seeing is not the same as what I'm reading. And it's 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 a struggle. And also a lot of faith is very community-based, right? Mm. And so if I come to church or mosque and I feel ostracized, it does affect your worship and how you see religion. That's one side of things. And I've, I wonder if, if Gifted's mom ever felt completely at home in, in that church. Because church used to be her, a, a source of comfort. Yeah. And even though she went there to pray a lot, she, she was still aware of how the people saw her. She was still aware of what people said about her. And I guess the worst case was when a son then break, broke down, right? And she mm. saw how the people treated her. And I wonder if that worsened her situation. Because if church yeah. is where you go to seek solace and God is who you go to, I mean, God is always there, right? But then people, we are all supposed to serve and be mm. there. And those who are supposed to serve cast you aside. Doesn't that also affect your healing process? I think, like, I think a lot about how much more different her experiences would have been if the community had been entirely different. And if yeah. they had been supported. And it just makes me think about tech, how we can, and I guess just how we can begin to, maybe not begin, but how we can continue to have these conversations in terms of just racism in places of worship, because that's for me is the lowest of the low. Like, yeah. just, I think it's so important that you brought it up. And you know what it reminded me of? Um, I can't remember what it, what it was, but I feel like a couple of years ago, there was loads of initiative about creating black spaces, particularly in the US and the UK. Within the Muslim community, yeah. right? Mm. And oh mm. my God, let's not get, yeah, maybe let's get into it. So there, there was a lot of initiatives that are popping up about creating black spaces for um, black Muslims to feel like, you know, to feel a different, a different sense of community, I guess. Um, and I also remember like groups there was of a people, backlash. people yeah, were exactly. feeling very angry about dividing the community, dividing the Ummah. And I'm like, so if something didn't happen, I don't think if, if there wasn't an issue, the mm -hmm. need would not be going this length, would we? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, I also think I think it's perfectly. It's it's perfectly okay. Yeah, I I just I didn't understand how people started to wield people's need to to have a place where they felt safe as you're dividing Islam when actually yeah I don't understand the actions, I don't, I don't there understand are anti-Islam that, that led to that initiative. Yeah, but I think I remember not being saying, able to wrap my head around it because I was like I don't understand why you have a problem with this because we talk people talk a lot about the experiences and mosques within the majority of black people how people treat them why people don't want to sit next to them or stand next to them when they're praying how people put it's just you hear people's experiences I don't understand why all of a sudden you have a problem with someone saying I want to start the only black mosque or they didn't say you're not you, you shouldn't come I mean if they if you were to go to that mosque they would not turn you away for example or if you were to show it up wasn't even event, like, yeah no I, example, I mean I wouldn't right, agree just, with like creating an only black mosque 
But like along the south, it's not as it's not the idea of Christmas in black. You know how you hear about like for example. No, but you know how you hear about like for example, there's a Somali mosque in this area, right? And yes, it's called a Somali mosque, but it doesn't mean that if you are not Somali or if you are not black, if you you went to pray in the mosque, they will turn you back or turn you away and say, "Oh, don't come into the mosque." That that's not the case. Yeah, I kind of think of, about it like in the way that we used to go to Asalatu, right? Like it's Asalatu is something that's exactly. unique to our experiences as Nigerian Muslims and as Black Muslims, right? And so if someone looked at that and said, oh, you're dividing the Ummah, I'd be like, is everything all right? <laughs> I'd be like, do we need to have a conversation? <laughs> because that is such a unique expression. Like Asalatu is such a unique expression of our culture. Um, mm. I think aside from a few things that I'd be like, oh, maybe not. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it is just, yeah, like there's nothing wrong with people congregating together and remembering Allah and praising the Prophet Sallallahu um, and organizing madrasa for their children. Yeah, so I, I really get your point in terms of when, uh, with the, when the place that you're supposed to feel safe then becomes a place where um, you're afraid to be in or it becomes a, a place of judgment, a place of hostility then how do you reconcile that with your faith? And I think also, mm-hmm. I don't even think it's just about race because I was reading something recent with, um, I think, was it Nafisa? But I don't want to like quote her in a wrong way. And she was saying it's a miracle of Allah that Muslims, are, uh, Muslim women are so, so devoted to Allah in the way that we are, considering sometimes what goes on in our community in the treatment yeah, of, that's yeah, true. like Muslim women. Mm-hmm. Hopefully I didn't misquote her. But I think, yeah, there's like different pockets of community when, where these kind of things happen. And I think it's just, it's so incumbent upon us and I think also because of like our um our privilege right like we talk about white privilege a lot but I think all of us have privilege in the fact that we are often blind to things so when we when we think about access mm-hmm. to mosques or disabled Muslims right like or access to religious texts right like there's mm-hmm. so many things mm-hmm. that we might not be um cognizant of which is why it's important that we're constantly listening to people and getting feedback and that's how we make sure that we are not turning faith or religion into something that it shouldn't mm-hmm. be like Imagine yeah. coming on the day of judgment and God's like, did I send you to do that? Or like, mm. why are you misrepresenting my faith for? <laughs> so we need to be mm. so that's careful. A, that's one that we actually can't be I think about a lot. Mm. Yeah, misrepresenting faith. Of injustice in this earth. But yeah, it was such a harrowing thing to read about. Even that question where, was it Nana that asked the pastor about the hypothetical yeah. situation mm-hmm. of would black children in a village in Africa. So he was like, if there was a, 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 yeah, he said if there was a remote village in the middle of nowhere in Africa and they've never heard of religion before, that's actually a very good point. And they've never heard of religion before, would they go to hell? And the the pastor didn't even think twice. It didn't even blink. He just said, yes, they will. And the way that obviously Gift interpreted it is that, that black people in the middle of nowhere, they're not even deserve the, what's the word? The mercy of God, even though they had never heard about the religion it made me think of a lot of things so i remembered yesterday i was listening to hard work and the star Bahman Nafi was talking about how there's different types of knowledge he was talking about how Imam al-ghazali said there's different types of knowledge and there's different types yeah. of answers to these, to these knowledge and um, questions that we have um and how there's some things that god has told like that's shown us clearly in the quran and there's some things that we don't know and it's okay mm-hmm. to say i do not know and i wondered okay. so much why the pastor did not just say i do not know first of all you are not god so you have no right to cast anybody into hell mm-hmm. um and i feel like there's so many other ways he could have answered the question that it just it didn't it did not use intelligence at all in engaging uh, with them and people don't understand how much young people how impressionable young people are yeah and 
how much stays with them in spaces like this and in, in like this these kind of conversations um, and like how religion is taught, for example, you're not allowed to ask questions. And when you ask difficult questions, they either don't answer it or they tell you that, that you're questioning God and how dare you question God. And there was a, there was a time where the, the pastor started defining sin, right? And then he was talking about how sin is defined as anything that you think, say, or do that goes against God. And I was like, my God. That's basically everything you everything in life. Like, like, like and it makes you feel like your entire existence is a sin. And I think yeah, whatever faith that we belong to, it's important that we, we don't fall into that. <laughs> like God mm-hmm. is asking you to be cautious, but I think even Islamically we understand like we're never per- perfect or we're striving to be better than we were before. Mm-hmm. Whereas this but, makes you feel like there's no point striving because you're always gonna be bleak. You just always yeah, gonna be like everything you do is gonna be a sin. And, but on that subject, I don't know. It actually generally makes my heart sink every time that I see people issuing fatwas, and I'm like, we actually don't have knowledge on this. Like, we like a lot of the times I can say half of the people who issue fatwas online on Twitter. Hello, somebody. You explain what fatwa is. Like ruling about ruling. permissibility of yeah. things or impermissibility of things. It's like, did you pick that out of a hat? Like, I, you haven't been to school. I know I haven't been to. I haven't been to like. I haven't been to any serious Islamic studies. So how are people just issuing rulings right, left and centre and we're calm with it? Like, I don't know, is a perfectly acceptable phrase to use, I swear to God. Mm. Like, we should, mm. not be, we should not feel pressure to always have an answer to everything. And when we don't have answers, we should go and research it. But that pressure to always, like, be throwing out permissibility and impermissibility, it, yeah, it disturbs my heart, man. That novel, oh, man, there were so many things in the book to really grapple that she with. That about. I think yeah. I loved... I just I loved the well-rounded because there were there was a conversation in a class that she attended Gifty, um, and I remembered one of the class one of the people in the class was saying how he even though he doesn't believe, um, he would still want his kids to go to church because he loved he loves them being taught the difference between the right and wrong, yeah. Um, and I remembered someone else was then in the class saying how he doesn't mind that what he doesn't like or the problem he has is how right and wrong is taught and how you're made to feel like you're basically like you don't have a chance basically you're made to feel like you there's no point you're already horrible well I don't know if horrible is the word but like they don't give you a chance they don't say let me tell you something you're gonna do these things you're gonna have these thoughts you're gonna have these feelings you're gonna feel lost and you're gonna feel this and you're gonna want to do this you're gonna feel greed and envy and this yeah. right and jealousy but 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 the important thing is doing the work right learning that okay you feel these things how can i make sure this doesn't translate into negative action or this mm-hmm. and so on right just learning how to navigate that space you cannot be perfect and that's the one thing i felt like is not like they don't translate that that work has to be done it's just either you're good or you're bad and mm. um, but then I love that towards the end of that chapter she then talked about how so a lady was given a lady from like Harvard School of Divinity was given a lecture and mm. Gifty was saying how she approached the bible with extraordinary acuity and her interpretation of it was so humane so thoughtful that I became ashamed of the fact that I very rarely associated those two things with religion which obviously reflects how she was taught religion, right? Yeah. And then she goes on to say, my entire life would have been different if I had grown up in this woman's church instead of a church that seemed to shun intellectualism as a trap of the secular world designed to undermine one's faith. And that hit home very strongly because you have people who 
instead of saying like they don't know that the, as again as about not knowing the answer to a question they make you feel like you're challenging god or how dare you and religion and science can never be in the same place because science is questioning god's work but god gave us intellect mm, to use for a reason that's a, oh, let, me a little, let me do a little plug a little a little plug Flood and i have a journal out on that subject yeah. of knowing god <laughs> not that i'm saying the journal will help you to know god but um this well, you can have a link of, to it actually yeah of course i'll add a link little plug <laughs> i think this idea of knowing who god is for all of us is so important like defining like our experience with of god is is so deeply personal like my experience of god can't be the same as yours in the same way that your experience of god isn't the same as everyone else's like we have mm-hmm. um i guess like foundational love foundational understanding of god but just that importance of connecting with god's attributes like when you are learning god's attributes and you start to like become aware in your own life and you start to see the way that god's presence manifests in your life like that is so important because then it takes you know that that um part of the quote that you were mentioned about her just not like i remember um the character gifty mentioned in the book this sense of like approaching the scripture with new eyes right because she's now mm. yeah she was like i almost like, never took the oh go on sorry no you I was gonna say she said i almost never took the time to think about what i was reading reading let alone serve the words of the bible she, uh, and it just reminded me of what you're talking about which is pausing to reflect and like the practical aspect of these things in your life and how you can live these words that you're reading as opposed to just reading it memorizing it and then just forgetting about it in a sense you know the hadith um about the prophet being that like physical manifestation of the Quran, like he's a of the Quran. Quran. yeah it was a walking Quran. Like, that's yeah. what i like when i think about that it's so inspiring because you think about like that's what that's the end goal like mm. yes we pray five times a day we fast during ramadan but all of that mm-hmm. is supposed to manifest in our character it's supposed to manifest mm-hmm. our love for god it's supposed to manifest in our understanding of god and if we're not taking mm-hmm. the time out to do like our own work right like yes you will get mm. education like you will go to you will learn your religion you will learn your faith in a way that you should learn it but at the end of the day you still have to take that time to be present in oh, mm, mm, you know what this reminded me of what Banky and, and Nadeswa said yesterday where they were like oh, nobody can have a rela- <laughs> they were like <laughs> nobody can have a relationship with God for you yes and I, not your like, teacher that's so powerful. not your parents nobody, nobody. you have to be the one to seek it and work on it and build it and form it for yourself and i, I loved that a lot um this reminded me of that basically <laughs> yeah it was a powerful statement man because i think sometimes we kind of ascribe like our teacher to do the job for us like even stuff mm. like hard work as much as we we love listening to it i feel like the ultimate objective is for us in our own time to be engaging with it yeah exactly mm-hmm. like yes we're benefiting from these teachers and may Allah continue to increase them in knowledge but I feel mm-hmm. like I always think back to like their ultimate objective is that our love for the Quran increases to such an extent that mm-hmm. we pick it up in our own time and we reflect on it in our own, and like we build that personal relationship because he can't mm-hmm. do the work for me like I can listen to him all day but he can't like he can't take control of my heart in the way that I can take control yeah. of my heart so yeah that was that was a really good point yeah the book was just really sad like I remember um yeah no I remember that precise moment where Nana got prescribed the oxy I can't I can't even pronounce the word oxycontin and I was like it's game over the minute they prescribed I said game over because I I think yeah 
did the book not remind you of when breath becomes air because you know it was a neurosurgeon and he talked a lot about the brain and when she was talking about the mice experiment and how brain chemistry changes what i loved was first of all how like detailed the book was in terms of like experiments that they did and reference old experiments and new experiments and so on but one that stuck with me two experiments stuck with me it was the one where they were like you know how you'd the mice would hit a liver to get a reward but then they would also get shocked right yeah and then there were those who learned that okay if i press this i get shocked so the reward is not worth it so they stopped right Mm. and there were those who just couldn't stop yeah. they would continue to press it even if there was no reward because of the random times that they'd seen that they'd got no reward and even though they, they didn't know if there was going to be a reward but they continued yeah. to press it and press it and pr- and it was so depressing to read that it really was um because it just reminded me of like i don't know i guess the power of the things that we don't know a lot about in terms of our yeah. brain chemistry so like much. there's so much we don't know when it comes to the brain um, and the second thing that stood with me, with me in some of the experiments was, remember how there's an experiment sh- where she was like, they tweaked something in the mice's brain and the mice was like really happy. Yeah. And then they tweaked something else and it was, it looks like it was in some intense, unimaginable depression. And then she was talking about how one tenth of a centimeter is all that stood between pretty good and unimaginable sorrow. And when I think about how small one tenth of a centimeter yeah. is, I'm just in awe of just God's magnificence. Um, yeah. And I just made me think about that a lot, basically. But that stood up to me um, in the book. That was the, like, a lot of, like, mental illness does change on brain chemistry. I think that's, like, one of the biggest takeaways. Like, understanding the mm-hmm. science behind it. But, yeah, the brain is so fascinating. Honestly, like, if I, if I, when I was younger, if I knew about neuroscience, I'd be a neuroscientist, you know? Mm. it's just so cool it's so cool to learn about it's really interesting isn't it it's yeah so much still left to discover so much it kind of makes you like think about like a hundred years from now the new discoveries that people would have made right now i'm excited about our minds our brain exactly like how those Mm. things function oh but i think there was also another part in the book where they were trying to talk about the soul and how it is that we can locate the soul and how like or you can't locate it anyway um, I read it and I just reminded me of some psychology course I did and I was like miss me with that please but um, yeah because I just feel like when you read about the history of psychology like the soul used to be a central part of psychology but then that or the mind and the soul and then that got pushed away right mm-hmm. and then it became an entirely, entirely different thing um, yeah but it was an interesting conversation because we're not machines think, yeah and I think unfortunately sometimes we do try like the way that we approach our relationship with ourselves or society in general is very much like we're robotic machines and that's how things work but um i don't have anything else today i do one more um i watched today with a friend um concrete cowboy um Mm. it's the movie with idris alba and it reminded me of yeah you know why it reminded me of transcendent kingdom and i i in terms of father-son relationship a father-child relationship mm. how sometimes you understand why your father's not present for example the changing man i understood why he had to to move back and i couldn't completely hate him for moving back yet his absence had an immense consequences on 
the family. And I think a lot, about a, a, lot of, a lot of families where the father's not present and how much it impacts them. I'm not saying single mothers don't do a good job, but it's it's a lot of a load for a mother, a single mother to have to carry, first of all. And yeah. that absence impacts the children without a doubt. Yeah. Or at least, at the very least, the lack of honesty. Because I feel like that yeah. false hope that he was giving his children. That, that was, was a big one. Because yeah. he should have just said he's leaving, he's not coming back, they can come visit him regularly, as opposed mm. to saying, I'm going to visit my brother, not coming for years, but then telling yeah, him on the married. phone over and over again that he's coming, and then getting remarried, and yeah. I feel like my biggest thing is... she communicated. Oh, that's my wishes yeah. in life, I wish she'd communicated. <laughs> No, it's just my, yeah, my biggest takeaway was just Gifty's um, evolution of the way that she looked at her brother's addiction and the way that she... Oh, I, that was my favourite part of the book. That was my favourite part like, real of the book. Yeah. Remember when she started off saying how when she saw Nana, she thought to herself, what a waste. Mm. Um, and at the end, she, she, she finally came to the conclusion that when, when she thought what a waste, it was her waste. It was her waste in not able to in not being able to see him beyond his addiction, and yeah. I loved it. Was as a I, I guess as a writer, it was so satisfying to yeah. see her bring yeah. it back and tackle it and like and grow because that's a big that's moment of growth. Like you have to grow to Age be able to growth. move from what you saw before then, and now I was mm. so proud of her. I was such a proud yeah. moment. I was like. It was a very honest portrayal of like the impact of addiction on the family of a loved ones, like seeing yeah. the pain that they go through as well and not being able to save someone that they love or not being able to help mm-hmm. someone that they love. Yeah, but also like just the compassion that is necessary. I love, yeah, I love how she mentions all the things that she loved about her brother, like the qualities that he say, represented, I loved it. the love that love. they shared. Yeah, that was really beautiful. So I, you know what, I one, one final thing is I think one thing that also allowed me to see that she had grown was the importance of seeking help because she starts off not wanting to seek help, not wanting to have this yeah. conversation. You remember she was skipping lunch with that lady because she didn't want to go uh, deeply. In. But then when she got to the chapter where she actually picked up the phone and called and said she needed help, I was so proud of her. Again, she had grown so much and she had learned that it's okay to be strong. It's okay to be this, but sometimes you, you can't do it all you can't carry it all you're going to need help and it's okay to ask for help like, yeah that's a word it's okay to ask for help like sometimes it's, it's, it's okay yeah, to say to someone to I'm, I'm tired I'm frustrated mm. I'm breaking down I can't do this anymore I don't know it's okay to say all of these things life is know? tough sometimes man like life will knock you down yeah. sometimes yeah so yeah, yeah. yeah right Cool. Let's get on to our favorite quote. You, you can start because I've gone no, because I've already you said most like, of yours. Point. Oh, actually, yes. One of my favorites. It goes, "What is prayer? If you are living a godly life, a moral life, then everything you do can be a prayer. Live your life as a prayer." I love that her mom said that. Did her mom? Yeah, right. I can't remember who said it, but I just love. Because remember she, how she wanted to pray. <laughs> actually no her mom said that because i remember she then tried to stay awake and pray and then she realized that she got distracted by her thoughts and she was trying to beat herself up for being distracted oh right okay she, i think so because she was like she was gonna spend time reflecting on on god or and praying right and then she realized yeah. that even when you're alone and trying to pray you still get distracted and she's like how can i live every moment of my life as a prayer and when i'm 
yeah but i love the i love the quote a lot i love it so much what's yours this, I think this appeared quite early on in the beginning. Actually, maybe in the yeah, in the beginning, where she was like, the thing I feared becoming my mother was happening physically in spite of myself. And it made me think about how, like, sometimes, I mean, when you, just about kids when they're growing up and you maybe you have a bad relationship with your mom or you hate your parents for maybe, obviously, for specific reasons. Mm. And as you grow older, I, I've been thinking a lot about this, how, how as you grow older, maybe one day you look in the mirror and you think, oh my God, I have my mother's eyes. And then does that start to bother you in a, in a traumatic sense of what if yeah. I become like her in terms of character, in terms of who she is? Um, and that's that stayed with me a lot. Um, when yeah, I read it. that is powerful. It is. Uh, my next one is she just never figured out how to translate who she really was into this new language and it made me think about like how language kind of like affects or access to a particular language at least in the context of like immigrants um can really affect your self-esteem and your confidence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. like the other day on sunday i went out and we were at the mosque and found like this um it was so cute because he was trying to explain stuff to us and i was really trying to grasp it and then eventually I could catch on to it. But then it was so interesting because the minute someone came in that could speak Arabic, you could just see like the way that he lit up and the fact that he could like communicate mm. himself properly. And I was mm. like, oh, and then mm. I remember this quote because I was like, it's so true. Like we see that happen even like with our parents when we first moved, like the idea of like, you know, when they're trying to read stuff and they're like, A for apple, like when they're trying to, like mm. when people didn't understand the accent and it's like, oh, this is actually what I mean. Um, mm. Yeah, I thought that was oh, it, it was painful. Mm, yeah. and how stressful because Gifty talks about her mum kind of like not being able to translate who she was into this so, in, yeah. language yeah, yeah. Sure, I like that one what's your next one uh it was let me see oh but the memory lingered the lesson I have never quite been able to shake that I would always have something to prove and that nothing but blazing brilliance would be enough to prove it and it just made me think a lot about being a black person and being a black woman um, and being a black, visibly Muslim, everything person. And just how you always have to do a million times more the work and still that sometimes is not enough. I was talking to somebody yesterday about that New York Times um, infographic that they did about the um, racism in what institutional structure, racism and lack of diversity in publishing. Um, and we were talking about how yeah. you saw the disproportionate numbers in terms of people, black authors, no, authors of color in general on yeah. the New York Times bestseller list. And we we're talking about how even these authors that we see on this list, a lot of them are the same. Why? Because first of all, not that your work, not only that your, your work has to be good, your work has to be absolutely amazing. Brilliant. Whereas a lot of the other white authors were on that list. I did not even recognize their names, never seen the book before. Not even in That's the store in the bookshop. And they're going to earn six times the figure. We actually need to talk about that report because it is shocking. Yeah. Like, that, that some of these authors talk about getting like seven figure, seven figure amount. And Roxanne. Um, People that you've never seen books. their books before in your life for their debut novel. Like, you've never heard of them. It's their first novel. Legit. And they... Seven figure somewhere. And you're seeing God. all these like accomplished authors of color are talking about like barely five figures like some of them got in like thirty thousand dollars advance mm. and someone's out here mm. getting seven and how figures jasmine, so jasmine ever Ward, ha- i'm telling you jasmine Woodhouse, she had to fight for 100k even though one of her books has already won a national award Imagine. the amount of work we have to do as as, as black people as oh god frustrating Anyways, that quote just i read that report that in anger. it was 
I was just like livid, <laughs> absolutely livid, because I was like, some of the yeah. authors, I was like, oh my god, they're bla- like they are brilliant, and look at the figures that it's like it's insulting. That's what it is. It's insulting. It <laughs> and that's the amount that they're getting offered. Okay, yeah. my next quote kind of touches on this idea of like, um, I guess the essence of addiction. So it goes, "Do it again, do it again." Your brain tells you, but every time you listen, the drugs work a little less and demand a little more until finally you give them everything and get nothing in return. No rush, no surge of pleasure. It's a momentary relief from the misery of the withdrawal. This is yeah. so perfect. It sums it up, sums it up perfectly. Addiction and how it impacts people. Yeah. What's your next one? That's done. Oh, cool. I have one final one. It goes, not all churches in America are created equal, not in practice and not in politics. And for me, the damage of going to a church where people whispered disparaging words about my kind was itself a spiritual wound so deep and so hidden that it has taken me years to find and address it. So that links to um, I loved it a lot. Like I loved it a lot. And I, I always think about how if I hadn't if I hadn't built a personal relationship with God and had my own personal experience and stuff with God, how much of my faith would have been impacted from my experiences in these spaces that I didn't feel welcome in. And man, yeah. how I feel like you for you to be able to get through these things, sometimes you need a very strong grounding in a relationship mm. with God, which is, which is sad. I mean, it's nice, but it's also sad that you have to brace yourself for these things um, yeah. because of how much they can affect you. Sure. It was a sad book to read, but I, I really, really enjoyed it. Bad, and I really love that stuff. <laughs> I'm glad um, I've got it because I feel like, yeah, I'm gonna leave through, I'm gonna read it again later in the future. It's it's worth a, a second read for sure. Definitely. Yeah. But yeah, I recommend it to anyone and everyone. I've talked about it a lot, actually. I told someone about it today, today yeah. in the bookshop. So, it's one of your yeah. favorite reads. <laughs> it is actually one Bless. of my favorite books um, so far. What's the latest book that you're reading? Um, so I started reading The Goldfinch by Donna Tart. Um, I'm reading it for a very specific reason. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a white American author. She, she writes literary fiction, and I think she writes really well. Yeah. Um, but even though she writes really well and she's a good storyteller, I found myself struggling to read the book and I, I, I was immediately able to pinpoint why. Um, and because I've, over the couple of, over years, I've made a conscious decision to read majorly books by non-white authors because I'm tired of a lack of representation of me being that one random person on the street in a book and that's that. Um, and so when I pick up books by white authors that do not also center, I'm not even saying your main character, even a secondary character. I think this is even, I think this is even more jarring for me because the book is set in New York City. Mm. And at the same time, I'm reading James Baldwin's, and this is set in like 2000 and something, right? And at the same time, I'm reading James Baldwin's book that was set in 1960 something. And that was set also in New York City. And I've read quite a lot of books in New York City. I know what New York City is like. And yeah. so you can't tell me that there's no diversity in New York City. And I mean, okay, I'm only 100 pages into the book and it has 800 pages. And maybe that's why I haven't yet seen diversity. And she has drops like this random guy with a dreadlock on the streets here and there and so on. <laughs> and was five here and there. But for me, it's not enough. And I was trying to explain this to someone yesterday and they were like um, explaining how, yeah, but sometimes even if a book doesn't have that kind of representation, if they have culture, that's good. And I was like, the book has culture, it's centered. It has a big... One of the big themes of the book is art, right? But again, it's, it's art done by the white man, the arts from those days and, and so on. 
Um, and so whilst I'm reading it for a specific reason, which is that she writes really well, um, I just, I feel like I, I have to exert a bit more effort just to be able to sustain um, wanting to read it till, until the end. Um, but we'll see how, how far that's I get. That's an interesting point, because I feel like, mm, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting I think point. it's just like, personal it's, preference. But novel is set in a particular place, does it have to be representative of all people? I'm not saying it should be representative of all people, but I, it doesn't have to be a black person. You don't, I just want, it doesn't have to be black. I just wanted a yeah. bit more diversity. It doesn't have to be black, just a uh, bit more diversity. That's it. Yeah, I'm playing devil's advocate, but what if like- No, no, I get you because we, but then we live in a world- Because we live in a world that's not made up of only white people. Mm. Um, and if, I know it's fiction, but if you're gonna talk about Give me the specific details of the place, of the streets, of the dirt. Yeah, then, and and because it's it's literary fiction, it spans this. So it starts when the boy is twenty seven years old, the man, but it goes all the way back to when he was thirteen, and it's gonna span his entire life. He cannot tell me. Maybe actually, maybe that's true. Never mind. I was gonna say he can't Sorry. tell me his entire life. He didn't engage with anybody that's not white, but maybe he didn't with anybody that's not white. Yeah, maybe that's his story. <laughs> yeah. Oh but I do like the like like the book and like the writing and mm. like the author. Um, yeah. It's just a personal preference thing, basically. Mm. No I feel you. Though. I feel you. I was. I mean, I, I saw this quote somewhere that the devil doesn't need any more advocates. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Oh, I'm I don't know no, it's fine. I think it's yeah. nice to have these questions and think about these things. Like, mm. is it just you having expectations, and does, does she have to? I mean, it's her book. She could do whatever she wants. Yeah, um, no, I think it's perfectly valid taste. Like, there's some there's some particular type of books that I've outgrown, but I, I yeah. know I saw you, I saw you. Sorry, I definitely saw you because there's certain movies that I can't bring myself to watch anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I get where you're coming from with that as well. Myself. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, so I feel you. I am reading our next book for book conversations in the yes, early hours. The next month are going to be Ramadan edition, so we're going to talk about. Yeah, um, I suppose in the early hours it's mostly about your morning routine, which I'm really looking forward to because I feel like my morning routine is not there. So I'm looking forward to reading <laughs> this book. We're going to be talking about accepted whispers and making the ah, yeah, we've got good books in store, and inshallah, yeah. In the early hours, it's actually it's short, but it's like packed. Man. It's short, but like there's a lot in that book, book. man. So much. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm looking forward to our next recording. And Same. no way, we still have, I guess, like next week, Ramadan will just be about to start. I was about to say Ramadan Barak, but I'm like, let me hold it off to next week. Yeah. Inshallah. Inshallah. Yeah. Inshallah. We'll Inshallah. see. Allah. There. So that's the end of today's show. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Book Relations. We hope you've gained benefit from the discussion. If you've enjoyed the episode, Remember to like, review, comment, and share it with friends and family. Book Conversations is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and several other platforms. Email us your thoughts at bookconversationspod at gmail.com and let us know what books you want us to check out. Till next time. Remember to, remember to read. read. Adios.